Uh, if you have your Bible, I invite you to open it up to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. We're going to get there in just a minute. We're continuing in our Who We Are series here this morning. Uh, it's a four-week series that became a five-week series with a snowstorm in there. And, uh, but we're finishing it up today, and uh, we're excited to do that. Glad to be bringing this message to you this morning. Each year, we start the year off with these messages that are important. They're important to us. I think they're important to you. We talk about how you're going to grow in Christ in 2019. Um, and the reason we do this every year is because we really believe that if you will take time to think in certain ways and to act in certain ways, that you will experience growth in Christ. And we think there are some specific ways that are helpful to do that. Uh, and so each year we focus on some fundamentals of the faith, some ideas that uh, when you change your way of thinking and you change your way of acting, that it actually causes you to grow in God. And that's what our desire is for you, that you would grow in God. And so these four things uh, this year that we've kind of put uh, statements each week to uh, those things this year. And so the first week we talked about the Bible and our statement was this, we don't change the Bible to fit our lives, we change our lives to fit the Bible. Those are on the back of your connect card there. And uh, you can see them there on your Connect card. Next week, I think you'll see them on a wall someplace. I don't know. Pastor Marvin's working on that. We'll get them up on the wall. Um, but so you'll see those, these reminders. We don't, change, we don't change the Bible to fit our lives. We change our lives to fit the Bible. And so if you will take time to get into the scriptures, to learn God's word, that it'll change you and you'll become more like God and the, uh, more of the person he's called you to be. Second week, we said prayer is our first priority, not our last resort. That uh, prayer is a fundamental part of our life, something we do, something we believe, not just something we run to, excuse me, run to in an emergency. Last week, Pastor Marvin preached and he talked about we are not merely spiritual consumers, we are a church of active contributors. Or in my mind, that'll forever be known as the lawnmower sermon. And if you were here last week, you know what I mean. If you don't know what I mean, then go listen to the podcast sermon and find out, and then go find your lawnmower. Um, that's, uh, I thought that was a great image last week. It stuck with me all week, that idea. And this week, we have our final message in our Who We Are series. Now, if you have been here at Mount Hope over the last, uh, I guess, 12 years, at least we've been doing this. Uh, or at least several years, you know what I'm going to talk about this morning. Because you can go down in your head and say, okay, he talked about the Bible, he talked about prayer, he talked about church, there's one more he always talks about every January. You know what it is. What is it? I'm going to talk about money this morning. Aren't you glad to hear that? Let me tell you this though, before I talk about money this morning, I'm going to give you some money. How's that? So I'm going to ask the ushers at this time to pass out. There's going to be some buckets that are going to go down your rows. There's a little baggie in there. I want you to take out one, please only take one, one baggie out of the bucket that contains money. Uh, you can keep this the whole time. This is yours. Uh, so I'm going to talk about money. I'm going to give you some money. And while you're handing, while you're getting that, that little illustration this morning, I want to talk to you a little bit about this because I think some of you, maybe some of you are new to church. Some of you are like, uh, you've started attending Mount Hope recently and uh, you've been waiting and you've been like, I knew it. They're finally going to talk. I knew all they wanted was money. And they're talking about this morning. It hits it. Let's get out of here. Let me tell you before you go there, let me tell you first of all, 
some of the reasons I'm not talking about money this morning. I am not talking about money because the church is in a budget crisis. I'm not talking about money because we're running a campaign or a fundraiser. We received the offering already today. We're not taking another one before you leave. That's not why we're talking about money. In fact, this past Wednesday night, we had our uh, regular monthly deacon board meeting and uh, we had our report our, through from our first half of our fiscal year, which uh, we run a July 1 to June 30th fiscal year. And so we had our first six months of financials in that we reviewed as a deacon board. If you're not familiar with the role of the deacons at Mount Hope, they kind of oversee the finances and facilities. And I'm happy to let you know, we had a great healthy report for the first six months. Uh, giving uh, has, has been up, not only over last year, but over budget. Funds are funded. Um, there's a healthy cash reserve. Uh, and things are going well. So I'm not here talking about money because we have a budget problem. We talk about money. Some people think that churches talk about your soul because they really want your money. Uh, I really think that a church, if they're doing what God has called them to do, is going to talk about money because they care about your soul. There are very few things that have the ability to grip and control and influence us in this world like money does. Every minute of every day, you are either spending or making money, if you think about it, right? Even if you are sitting in your house alone and that house is paid for, you are still spending or making money. You're still paying the taxes on that house. You're still heating that house. You're still using electricity in that house. Every minute you are alive, you're either spending or making money. Nowadays, it's easier than ever because you could be sitting here and there's someone drawing on your account. Hopefully you've allowed them to. But there's some company that's automatically debiting your account or paying an expense or paying a bill. You're paying things and spending money and you don't even realize it these days. Money is something we have a constant relationship with. And sometimes we don't realize how strong a relationship. It connects with some of our strongest base instincts in life. Power, control, security, status. These things that often grip us are often connected with money. It's emotional. It's why when I am talking about, or I said I'm talking about money this morning, you got a knot in your stomach, or a tightening of your muscles, or you sighed, or you are ready to get up and leave. Because money is an emotional issue. And you want to come to church and have the pastor talk about God and then leave your money alone. And I'm not here to take your money. I'm here to talk about what God says about us. So take out your bag of pennies there. Everybody got one? If we've done our job right, and those that have helped me this week, thank you to those, you know who you are. There should be 10 pennies in that bag. You should have 10 pennies in that bag. So take all 10 pennies out and put them in your hand. Take 10 pennies out of that bag and put them in your hand. All right. Those of you that have been following God for some time or you grew up in the church, you know the answer to this question. What is God's, if he gave a rule, what was God's rule he gave when it came, comes to money? When he says, you should take this amount of money and put it towards my kingdom work and put it towards the things of God, what's, what's, God, what's the rule? How many pennies? Okay, so take one penny and put it in the back. And you got nine pennies in your hand now. 
Now what you have just done, and put that penny in the bag, let me tell you, is by our world's standards, extremely generous. Very few people outside the church, and I will tell you from knowing the statistics inside the Christian church, not particularly this church, but the church as a whole, is extremely generous even by the standards of most Christians giving to take one out of 10 pennies and put it in the bag. That would be considered extremely generous by our world's standards. Many people would say to give 10% of your hard-earned income is crazy and how could you even live if you did that? And yet we said, well, this is what God had put in place. And many people, if they're saying, well, I give 10%, I, I, you know, even if I did it, I'd probably do it begrudgingly. If I had to do it, I would, some people would say. But here's what I want us to consider this morning. I believe that what God calls Christians and followers to, followers of God to do, is to be joyful and generous givers. I don't think God's calling you to be a begrudging giver. I don't think God's calling you to some rule out of obligation that you'll follow begrudgingly. I think God is calling us to be joyful, generous givers. But that can be a challenge. How do you do that? Well, let's look at a passage of scripture this morning about two groups of people that Paul was talking to. One group were joyful and generous in another group, we're not so. Or at least Paul suspected they were not so. So he's writing to encourage them to be joyful and generous in their giving. The one group, we're going to find out, that was joyful and generous had the least ability and means to do so. The other group that was not so joyful and generous had a greater means to be able to do so. Interesting question, where are you? Am I a joyful, generous giver? Am I a reluctant, begrudging giver? Do I have the ability to give, but I'm not generous? And if I am generous, maybe I'm not joyful about it. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but you put yourself. Where are you on that? Joyful, generous giver? Or maybe have the ability, but not generous? Or maybe generous, but not joyful about it? So what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, we're going to read 1 through 15 uh, eventually, but I'm going to start with just verses 1 through 7 here. Uh, he's writing to a group, so let me tell you just before I start, he's writing, he's writing to the church at Corinth, believers in the church at Corinth in the first century, and he's going to talk about, he's going to mention, you'll hear me mention the churches of Macedonia. Macedonia is another area of Greece. Corinth is in Greece. Macedonia is another region of Greece where he's writing to several churches that Paul has ministered to there. The church of Philippi and Berea are there. Corinth is a wealthy area. It's a port. In and out, a lot of trade, a lot of commerce, a lot of money going in and out of Corinth. Macedonia is an extremely poor area. And so Paul is writing, and this is what he says. This is what God's word says. We want you to know, brothers about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy <clears throat> and their extreme poverty 
have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. In this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urged Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. So first, Paul talks about a group of people in his Macedonian churches who don't have the ability to give. He says they're in extreme poverty and severe affliction. I don't know all what extreme poverty looks like in first century Greece, but I've got to imagine that it's worse than even what we would call poverty in our day and age. We have poverty in our day and age. We have people that live in great need, whether it's a need of a home or food or shelter. We have that. But we also have some things set up within our system and structure. Perhaps not enough. Perhaps we can certainly do more. But there are some things in place to help people in those situations. To get a place to, out of the cold and a meal and systems and government organizations set up to help people. I, I have to think that in first century Greece, when someone was in extreme poverty, those things were not, those safety nets were not there. Paul says the Macedonians, they're in extreme poverty. They're in severe affliction. They can't afford to give, but here's what he's saying they did. A little pennies in your hand. They put one in because they gave to the Lord. And then Paul says, they begged us for the privilege of being able to give more. They gave their responsibility to God and then they begged Paul to allow them to be able to get, they put another penny in the bag. And most people, all people would look at them and say, you can't afford to do that. Paul says they gave beyond, not just they gave according to their means. He says they, they, they gave beyond their means. And they did it in such a way, begging him to do it, that it was joyful. Please, let us do this. They didn't have the ability, and yet they did it. He's writing to a group of people in Corinth that do have the ability and don't do it. He lived in an old apartment in an old house. It's a rented apartment lived in it for long as I knew him. He attended church here years ago. He doesn't attend here anymore, and he doesn't live around here anymore, so don't try and figure out who it is. <laughs> but if you saw him, you wouldn't think he had the ability to give great amounts. He drove a car that I don't know what vintage it was, but it was several decades old. And it was kept running by, I think, prayer and some good mechanics. And when we were raising money several years ago to build our family life center, I remember he made a commitment when we took commitment cards one day. I saw a card come in. 
I saw the name and I saw the commitment and I honestly thought, well, this can't be right. And then I thought, well, maybe it's right, but that's a lot of faith this person has. Or maybe I just didn't understand the situation, so I said, I got to take this guy to breakfast and find out what's going on. And I sat down with him and shared with me that uh, he believed in what God was doing and that this was of God and that he wanted to be a support for this project and, and that, yeah, he, over the next three years, he was going to give this amount of money that actually made him, I think, uh, one of the top four single donors to our building campaign. And if you, many of you would have sat beside him in church, you would say, and I asked you who the people are that could give and significantly contribute to a campaign like this, his, his name wouldn't be in your top 10. And yet, there's a, he was able to not only say he was going to give and give, but sit across the table from me with the biggest smile on his face and saying, it's our privilege to be able to do this. And I ask, how? How does a person get to that place where you would say, well, maybe, you know, maybe you should get a little more reliable car. Or maybe, you know, your housing situation, you can improve it a little bit. And we would say that wouldn't be an unreasonable way to spend his money. And yet he joyfully said, no, I want to give it to the work of God. And how do you get to that place? Because he's writing to these Corinthian Christians and he's telling them, look, the people in Macedonia did it. And yet, people of Corinth, you have the ability to do it and you're not doing it. In fact, I'm afraid you're not doing it. That's why he says, I'm sending Titus to you. Here's what he's doing. He said, I'm going to send Titus because I don't want, this is what he explains later, I don't want to come and you be embarrassed because you said you were going to do this and you didn't do it. Because you made these commitments that you're going to give this money to help the, uh, offset the pain and the, the suffering of some of the Christians in Jerusalem. So I don't want to come and you be embarrassed. So I'm going to send Titus because I don't think you're doing it. But I know you have the ability to do it. And he says the Macedonians couldn't do it. And they did. And you can do it. And you don't. And they did it joyfully and generously. Well, how do you do that? How do you become a joyful, generous giver? Well, let's get back to chapter 8 and pick up in verse 8. And this is what he says. Continues to speak to the church at Corinth. He said, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. And in this matter, I give my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. In other words, he's saying, look, you made this commitment. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there... It is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. He's saying, look, you've got the money. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need. 
so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness, as it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. How do you become a generous and joyful giver? It's pretty simple, and I would say it this way. You consider what you've been given. Consider what you have been given. See, the problem with us sometimes when it comes to giving is what we do is you take that handful of pennies and someone or something is asking for a penny and you look down at the pennies and you're going, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, I don't know, I don't know if we can give a penny. And you're counting the pennies and we're focused on the pennies. But Paul doesn't tell them to look at what they have. He tells them this. He said, I say this. He said, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. He basically says, well, let's, let's not talk about the money for a moment. Let's forget about the financial aspect. And let's look at the theological aspect. Let's talk about the theological truth that the God that you serve and that the God that you love came down from heaven, what we just talked about at this table, came down, made himself poor, emptied himself so that you could receive the grace of God. Let's talk about the God that you say that you worship, that you say that you follow, that you say that you want to model your life after, and let's talk about his generosity towards you. And let's get a picture of what he has done and then you can look at what he's calling you to do. I love, uh, I read a couple commentators this week and what they said about this passage and one said this. He said that the sacrifice of the Macedonians for others is one thing. The sacrifice for Christ for others is quite another. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ denotes the utterly undeserved Royally free, effective, unwearying, inexhaustible goodwill of God, active in and through Jesus Christ. God's effective, overflowing mercy. When we have been the beneficiaries of such undeserved grace, how can true Christians shut their hearts or purses to brothers and sisters in need or begrudge every penny they may share with others? And then he says this, a half-hearted response ill befits the total sacrifice of Christ made for us. And Paul is saying, look, get the perspective. Before you're looking at what you can give, before that, look at what you have been given before you consider what to give. And I think that's what the, the only way, the only explanation I can have for what the Macedonians did, the only explanation I can have for sitting down with this one man and others like him through the years, how can you give like that? How can you live like that? How can it be joyfully and generous that you would do that? And the only explanation I have is that they consider what they've been given before they consider what they give. Because how can you give such an unreasonable, in such an unreasonably generous way? Only when you realize that you have been given 
to in such an unreasonably generous way. Because the truth is, I think, for many of us in our world, we say, well, we can't, I, I can't afford to give. If we're honest, I think the truth is, it's not that we can't afford to give. It's that we've already given and committed many things. Those nine pennies, those ten pennies, someplace else that's limited our ability to give. Charles Spurgeon was a pastor in the 19th century, pastor of the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London, uh, preaching. It was a mega church of its day, preaching to thousands of people. And one day a wealthy man had written to him a letter asking Spurgeon, this great preacher in you know, metropolitan London, to come to his rural church to help raise funds to pay off a debt. And the wealthy man, no doubt, you know, uh, valuing the connections he had with Spurgeon, thought if I can get the great preacher to come in, he'll come in, he'll preach a fabulous sermon, and they'll be so in awe and enamored with Spurgeon that, you know, the wallets will open up, the gifts will be given, and we'll pay off this debt. And so in inviting Spurgeon, he wanted to extend hospitality as much as possible. So he wrote to Spurgeon and he said, when you come, you are free to use my country house if you like. Or you can use my house in town if you like. Or you can use my seaside house if you would like. Spurgeon wrote back to him, sell one of your houses and pay the debt yourself. <laughs> Maybe you don't have a beach house to sell or whatever. That's not the point. But, here, but here's the thing. The point is, I think... We sometimes don't realize, well, when we sometimes don't realize when we limit our ability to be generous. Maybe it doesn't go like that for you. Maybe it goes something like this. Uh, you realize if you have a, your cable bill, if you have one, is getting a little high. And so you call the cable company. And you say to them, look, uh, the bill's getting too high. It's costing too much. Uh, I'm, you know, I'm going to cut it off. I'm going I'm to get rid of it. I'm going to go with someone else. And I'm uh, going to go with someone. You may have had that conversation. And they say, oh, Mr. Piccarello, we are so glad for your business. I mean, they don't call you that. Whatever they call you. That would be weird. And they say, you have been such a good customer over the years. And we really appreciate it. We don't want to lose your business. I'll tell you what. We've got a deal. And we're, I'm going to give you the best rate we have. And here's the rate we have. And, and how does that work for you? And I say, you know what? You know, that's, that's reasonable. I'll pay that bill. Thank you very much. And, and we'll do that. And they say, well, just before you go. They say, Mr. Piccarol, you know, I noticed you watch sports once in a while. Once in a while, we've got a great sports package available. And it is going to give you 25 more channels of sports. And you'll be able to watch cricket in India and every single sports game and tennis. And you'll be able to watch everything. And it's only $9.95 a month. And I think, no, 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 no. I called to lower my bill, right? I'm going to hold that. I'm not, I don't need that. I'm not going to watch it. I called to lower my bill. So I, I'm, not, I'm not going for that. They say, oh, okay, Mr. Pickwell, that, that's fine. But I'll tell, you, I'll tell you what, I'm not supposed to do this. But you've been such a good customer over the years. I'll give it to you for $4.95 a month. 
And you say, well, 20 channels, 49, what's five bucks, 49? Okay, fine. Give me the sports package, right? And then, and, and what have you done in that moment? In that moment, I have limited my ability to be generous by 495 a month. And we don't look at it that way all the time. And for 495 a month, five bucks a month, okay, five bucks is five bucks. But multiply that by all the streaming services, all the phone plans, the electronics, the web subscriptions that you're too lazy to cancel, the alarm systems, the storage units for junk we'll never use, the extra meals out when we could have eaten at home, or whatever it is. But we say we can't afford to be generous and joyful about it. And we have to look at the Macedonians and say they were in severe affliction and poverty. It wasn't about how much money was in their bank account that made them generous. Corinthians had the ability to do it, and they didn't. I think sometimes we don't realize in our world where things go. It wasn't too long ago that, first of all, nobody had a cell phone. But then when you did get a cell phone, they said, well, you're going to sign up. We'll give you a free phone when you sign up for the service. Oh, okay, free phone. And then a few years after that, it was, well, we can't give free phones anymore. So you got to pay $99 for the phone. All right, $99 for the phone. I'll pay $99. And then a few years after that, well, now they're smartphones. So now they're a few hundred dollars for the phone. I don't know, I really need it. Okay, a few hundred dollars for the phone. And now, last year, the Apple phone comes out, and it's $1,000 for the phone. But don't worry about it, because we got monthly payments. So you don't have to pay. We just must. And now, I think the new Samsung 10 that's coming out is rumored that the highest-end model is going to come out for $2,000. Uh, Motorola Razor is coming out with a flip phone again, and it's going to be $1,500. And it wasn't too long ago that we would have said, that's crazy. And maybe you're still saying it now, but people are still paying it, and it's monthly payments. It's interesting how our thoughts change over time. Not only about what we need, but about what we're willing to borrow. When my grandfather uh, bought his triple-decker house in Somerville for $8,000, you can't do that anymore can't even pay the taxes on one for $8,000. Back when he bought it, I don't know if he had a mortgage on it, but if he did, I'm sure it didn't hang around very long. And I wonder what that generation might say to us when we borrow money to buy watches or phones or anything else that we buy on credit, that we sometimes lose perspective. Look at the pennies in your hand. God's rule that we talked about, give one and live off nine. But here's the reality. Most Americans have 10 and live off 12. And we have put ourselves in a position where we are no longer able to be joyfully generous as God has called us to be. In this action, we declare that there's more joy to be had in the things of this world than in the cross of Christ. Don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying Christians cannot enjoy the things of this earth. I'm not saying that. Paul's not saying that either. He's saying, he says, I'm not saying that you should be overburdened while others are relieved. I'm not saying that. Paul is saying, but give in light of the generosity of God 
and in accordance with what you're able to give. The problem, perhaps, is not that we have not been given enough. It's that we have stopped receiving joy and recognizing the generosity that has been given to us. So Paul's instruction is to look to Christ and then complete the work that you have. Many of us don't have the ability to give, not because we don't have, haven't been given by God, but because we've bought into some of the lies of the world around us of where we're going to find our true joy and meaning and value. So who are we as followers of Mount Hope? What's this week's statement on the back of your card? Here we are. As Paul has called the Macedonians and the Corinthians, we choose to live beneath our means so that we can give beyond our limits. We choose to live beneath our means so that we can give beyond our limits. And that is what we're calling you to. I mean, every Sunday when we worship the Lord in our tithes and offerings, I'm not expecting you to borrow money to give to the Lord, right? No, the expectation is we are living beneath our means so that we can give generously to people in need, so that we can give generously to the work of the Lord, so that we can give... We're living beneath our means, as the world would call us to, so that we can give beyond our limits. And you say, how can someone possibly give beyond their limits? It's giving that the world would say, that's unreasonably generous. That the world might say, you can spend that money on things you need. Not want, even need, we might say. There may be needs that we even deny ourselves of at times. Yes, I could, and it's unreasonably generous, but I have a God that has been unreasonably generous with me, and that's why we give. That's how you can give generously and joyfully, not because God has set some rule, not out of obligation. There are plenty of people who can follow a rule and still disobey God. You know what I mean by that, right? There were people in Jesus' day that were following the rules, and they weren't right with God. God isn't asking you to give following some rule. He's saying, I want to be joyfully and generously giving. And the way I do that is by understanding that God has been generous in giving to me. There's a difference. There's a difference between doing what a teacher or a boss says because they say so and doing it what you know will please them because you have so much admiration and respect for them. There's a difference between obeying your parents so that you don't get punished and doing what they ask out of honor and respect because you're so filled with thankfulness for what they've done for you. There's a massive difference between doing the things for your spouse so they won't get upset at you and being so overwhelmed by love and joy that you serve them. And there's a difference between understanding the rules and obeying and being so overwhelmed with love and grace from God that you cannot help but be joyfully generous with others. Paul's not telling them to understand the rules and give accordingly. Paul is saying, live so moved by the outpouring of grace from God through Christ into your life that you cannot help but live a generous life. Take a look at the nine pennies in your hand again. How generous has God been to you? 
Where does God, out of the joy of knowing him and the eternal joy of being saved by Jesus Christ, want you to invest in the lives of your family, friends, co-workers, ministry, strangers? Where does he want you to be generous? Because we sometimes have the wrong question. The question isn't about whether I put in the one and what I do with the nine. That's not the question on this side of the cross. That's not the question for you and me who have experienced the outpouring of God's grace in our lives. The question for us is, Lord, what do you want me to do with all 10? Because they're all from you. And they're all for you. The question isn't, God, do you get your one so I can do what I want with my nine? We just sang it a few minutes ago. I surrender all. I surrender all, God. What all 10 are yours? What would you have me do with them? John Wesley was a great evangelist of the 18th century. In 1731, he began to limit his expenses so that he would have more money to give to the poor. In the first year, his income was 30 pounds, and he found he could live on 28. And so he gave away two. In the second year, his income doubled, but he held his expenses even. And so he had 32 pounds to give away, a comfortable year's income. In the third year, his income jumped to 90 pounds, and he gave away 62 pounds. In his long life, Wesley's income advanced to as high as 1,400 pounds in a year, but he rarely let his expenses rise above 30 pounds. He said that he seldom had more than 100 pounds in his possession at a time. This so baffled the English tax commissioners, the IRS of his day, that they investigated him in 1776, insisting that for a man of his income, he must have silver dishes that he was not paying excise tax on. He wrote them. He said, I have two silver spoons at London and two at Bristol. This is all the plate I have at present, and I shall not buy any more while so many round me want bread. When he died in 1791 at the age of 87, the only money mentioned in his will was the coins to be found in his pockets and dresser. Most of the 30,000 pounds he had earned in his life he had given away. And he wrote, I cannot help leaving my books behind whenever God calls me hence. But in every other respect, my own hands will be my executors. In other words, I put a control on my spending myself for the sake of Christ and his kingdom. How many of us are so generous that it would make the government suspicious? Can you imagine that? Living a life of such generosity that the government says, no, 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 there's something wrong here. We're gonna have to do an audit because nobody lives this way. And here's the thing, it's overwhelming in generosity for what God has called you to because there are people who will live below their means for their own purposes 
But God is calling you to live below your means for his purposes and for his kingdom, to be able to be generous and experience what he does, to be giving. See, the lie of our age is you should raise your amount of spending to your amount of income. And for many of us, the only limit we have on our spending is our income. Well, the truth is, and this is a principle not just in the church, but of wealth in general, that if you will limit your spending, then you can truly grow not only wealth, but the ability to give and be generous. I wasn't aware of this, but as we were preparing this message, some of the guys on our preaching team told me about this trend that I was not aware of that's happening with some of the, these people that work for tech companies mostly. And they will make these large salaries but live extremely frugal.